0: Here's what I want you to do, if you would, if you just find, uh, the, if you have your Bible or if you're looking on your phone or your tablet, wherever you get God's Word, I want you to go and open up to the book of Mark. Uh, the book of Mark, if you think about the New Testament, it's the, uh, it's the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 11 today as we're starting a new series. But uh, before we go there, let me just uh, encourage you guys, thank you all so much for warmly welcoming John Hernandez last week to Hope Church. Wasn't that good? I felt like I had a TED Talk and a sermon all at one time. It was awesome. And uh, you guys have been requesting so much about, uh, about how you get a hold of stuff. Remember, we always have our podcast up by Monday. You go to our website, hopesharlotte.com. Right there, you can, uh, you can listen to it again, or you can download iTunes, follow us all the time. But whatever you need to do that, uh, just uh, spread that message out. That was a great parenting message. I, 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 was wanting, like, amen. I was wanting to be the amen person last week, you know? Just a, yes, stop helicoptering your kids. Come on, they're, they're kids, they bounce, it's all right. I can say that mine are older now. I know it their little, all right? But uh, that's a great message. So be sure, and if you didn't get a chance to hear that, take time with that. Also, just real quickly, two things coming up. April 9th, we are breaking ground on our property. Uh, after the service that morning, we're going to all go over to uh, the property right down the road, about a mile down the road here. Uh, we're catering and barbecue. We're also going to be baptizing there on site that day. Uh, if you've not been baptized and you need to be baptized, make sure and connect to me on that. And then also, just in case uh, you, read the, you read signs like I do, and you walked in this morning, you're like, wait a minute, the rec center is closed on Easter. Yes, the rec center is closed on Easter, but we are not, okay? So we are actually having an Easter breakfast here that morning, and we're having Easter service, so make sure, i let others know, rec center is closed, but... Not for us, all right? So uh, Mark chapter 11. We're starting a new series. And the series is something called 72. You're like, Mike, what's up with 72? It's not a real significant number if you think about it, right? It's like maybe, maybe you're getting close to that in age, or maybe it was the year you were born. That's not a whole lot of people here. Uh, but it's not a number you generally go, wow, that's a real spiritual number. But 72 represents 72 hours. It's, it's three days. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a period of time that in our lives, is very insignificant. In fact, if I were to ask you, what, what did you do over the last three days? I think most of us would have to do what I'd have to do, and that's pull your phone out and go, let me pull my calendar up, and oh yeah, I met with so-and-so, and I went to this meeting, and I was over here, because again, we are so busy, that time just passes like that. But in the Bible, 72 has some amazing significance when you see it as three days, three days that God does things that... Uh, that amaze us. Three days that God shows us something that we would have never seen before. In fact, a lot of amazing things took place in the Bible in the small span of a three of three days. In Egypt, in the, in the Old Testament, when the Israelites were, were in bondage and slavery to uh, to Egypt, Pharaoh. Think Ten Commandments. You'll you know, You'll Brenner, the, the whole the Charlton Heston. No, You'll Brenner. Which one? Both. Um, both old movie. Um, and you think about it. God struck Egypt with three days of darkness. I mean, picture. Total darkness, no light, no anything to get them to turn their hearts away from persecuting the Israelites. Later, when Joshua got the children of Israel out of the wilderness and they came to the Jordan River and they were ready to cross and go into the promised land, God said, no, you spend three days preparing yourselves. You spend three days getting ready for what is about to take place because you've never been there before. There's some definitely similarities to what we're going to be walking to in a building. I, as, a, as a child, I always loved the story of Jonah. How many likes the story of Jonah? I mean, Joni was in the belly of the whale, or big fish, if you're reading an IV, for three days and three nights, and there's some great significance to that because Jesus later told that story. In fact, in Matthew, don't turn there, Matthew 12, it'll be on the screen, Jesus was challenged by a group of religious people, and they say, if you're really the Messiah, you give us a sign. You know, do something to, to wow us. Make us know that you're really the Messiah. And here's what he said to them in, in that gospel. He said, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What was he talking about? He was talking about we're going to celebrate three Sundays from now. That is Easter. He was talking about the fact that Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross for our sins, and they put him in a tomb that was donated by a gracious donor. Literally, what he proclaimed was going to happen took place, That on the third day, he rose from the grave and is alive forevermore. And we're going to celebrate that. But it's amazing to me that there was a period before both the cross and the resurrection that lasted about three days that we really never talked that much about. There was a period of three days, 72 hours, In which Jesus revealed himself in a way that was very different from what we'd seen previously in in the story of both his life and his ministry. It was that time between the triumphal entry coming into Jerusalem and the crucifixion. And over the next three weeks, we're going to look at that time, those 72 hours, and we're going to look at the other Jesus, as I call him, the other Jesus that reveals some things to us we don't see in other places. I I call them the three days of Jesus that nobody remembers. (laughs) He just kind of moved right by them from triumphal entry, let's get to the cross, let's get to the, to the resurrection and we 're good, and but yet there's so much for us to learn in those three days, so right now, would you just pray with me and we 're going to open up this word in mark chapter 11? Father? God thank you God I just I just sense uh, your presence in this place this morning, God, and Father, have since we walked on the property this morning early, God, just to even set up, God, I pray that Lord today, God, you move our hearts, God, change us, shape us from the inside out, because God we need you, God we need you in a and all the reality of your power and authority, God, and all that you are to us. So, Father, I ask this morning, God, give us all ears to hear and hearts to respond. God, that your word would come alive to us. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Pick up the story in Mark chapter 11, verse 1. It's, it's Monday. It's Monday. It's it's, it's, a, it's a fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus was going to come into Jerusalem. He'd be riding on a, a donkey. He was, he was showing up. And we, we pick up the story. It says, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage in Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. And just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it. And we'll send it back here shortly. He's like, I, I got, we'll, we'll bring it back. I'll return it. It's okay. They went and found the colt outside in the street, tied to the doorway. And they untied it. And some people standing there asked, what are you doing? Untying the colt. And they answered as Jesus had told them to. And the people let them go. And when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road. And while others spread branches, they, they had cut on the, in the fields. And those who went ahead of them and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! They they were saying, save now. Hosanna wasn't just this proclamation of hallelujah. It was, no, save now. Do what we thought you were going to do when you got here. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So Jesus entered Jerusalem, went to the temple courts, and he looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Now, context. All through the Old Testament, the Israelites, God's chosen people, we, we, we tend to think of it as the nation of Israel now, and you kind of have to separate that. But the, the children of Israel, God's chosen people, they, they had been promised that the, the king was coming. They had been promised there was a, a Messiah figure. He was going to come and set all things straight. They, they were looking forward to that through their scripture, through their Old Testament prophets. They were looking forward to the day the king was coming. But they weren't looking for the king like Jesus. In fact, they were looking for a military king. They, they were looking for someone to come in and, and, and save them. They were looking for a leader to basically come in and kick out the Romans and lead them into prosperity and out of bondage and to restore what they had always dreamed of and always heard about back in the days of King David. Do it again. They were, they were looking for that day. But not only was Jesus not a military leader, but they, they, were, they were looking for a successful leader, someone who would make them prosper. Someone who would bring back wealth into them. Someone who would restore and even unite the various factions among them and and bring them back to this this great society they'd all dreamed about. Forgive me, but to make Israel great again. There you go. That's the only point you get on that one today. So, I had to. I'm sorry. In study, I couldn't get away from it. My wife's out of town. She'll, She'll move me back into control later, okay? But what they were saying was, do it again. We're tired of these Romans. We're tired of who's been in charge. Kick them out because we know we can be greater than this. So come, king, and do something we've been looking for you to do. But instead of attacking Rome, Jesus attacked Judaism. He attacked their religion. Instead of becoming a conqueror, he came as a confronter. Instead of talking about revolution, he talked about righteousness. And instead of cleaning out the enemy, he cleaned out his own house when he cleared the temple, the very place where God was to be worshiped. You see, he came, but not exactly what they expected. He came as this other Jesus, not, not a different figure, but a, a, as, a, as a different type of ministry than they were expecting, and he did some things that point the way to where we are today. Because pick it up in verse 12 where he says the next day, that's Tuesday. So this is the beginning of the three days. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, And because it was not the season for figs. then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts. And he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of all those selling doves. And would not allow anyone to carry merchandise to the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. Very significant, verse 18. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. Get him out of there, for they feared him. Because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. Three days, Tuesday. Significant. He curses a fig tree, he cleans the temple. What's that all about? It's the other Jesus. It's the other Jesus that is forgotten. The other Jesus that is neglected and overlooked in our current culture of Christianity, it's the other Jesus that they had missed because they were looking for something so different than the one who showed up riding on a donkey. You see, the other Jesus that on the day the crowd shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the Lord, is the same Jesus that walked out and, and saw a barren fig tree and cursed it and said, let there be no fruit ever again from you. And what he was doing, we're going to talk about in just a moment, symbolically he was basically denouncing the nation of, of Israel, the people of Israel. He was denouncing their, them as a people. Then he went into the temple, the very place where the religious leaders were gathered, ready to, to kill him. He just walks in. And he doesn't walk in and say, hey guys, I'm Jesus, I've showed up to like take care of you. No, he starts kicking over tables and running people out. He takes a whip, one, in Matthew's, he takes a whip and drives out the money changers. And what he was doing, he was denouncing their religion and he was denouncing their worship. Do you think anybody might have been disappointed in the king at that point? Do you think anybody might have been like, wait, can you ride back out of town so another team can come back in? They, they, they were missing the whole point. He said, my house is going to be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. What had happened? You see, they had taken their worship, and they turned it into a business. They had taken their worship... And they had turned it into a business. They were abusing. They were, they were taking advantage of the poor. Oh, don't bring that ugly sheep in here to slaughter. That sheep's not good enough. You've got to buy the sheep that the priests have uh, anointed. And Oh, by the way, that's double the price of what you paid before. Oh, you can't afford that? Hey, we've got a dove for you. It was totally merchandising of the, of the, of the word of God, of what God had called us to do. They had made their priests rock stars instead of humble servants of God. When the other Jesus showed up, he was a stranger to the very religion that was created to worship his father, the one who sent him. And my fear as we come into this season, the holy season, we celebrate Easter, we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, is that this other Jesus is also a stranger to many. Because so often we, we look for the Jesus that is uh, all about us. It's all about our needs, our problems. It's all about me, and it's not about the kingdom so I want us to look at this other Jesus because so often I find in modern Christianity we're not really comfortable with the other Jesus. I mean, we are, we are perfectly fine of Jesus' Christmas, right? I mean, everybody loves a baby, right? You, you can't get around that. Sweet baby Jesus, you know, Ricky Bobby, the whole thought. I mean, we just can't get around. that. that, that that's, that's nice. We've got, we've got Jesus. He's in, a, he's in a manger. Bless God, right? And we, we love Jesus. We love to celebrate Jesus and that. And we're excited when we read about Jesus the miracle worker because after all, he reminds us that anything is possible, and in him, it absolutely is. Anything is possible. We love the, we love the suffering. We love the teacher, Jesus. We love the one who, who brought out the Sermon on the Mount, and people said no one's ever taught like this before, and his moral principles, his guidance are, are unbelievable. And we stand like the disciples in those days and say, Lord, no one else has the words of life like you have. We, we love the, the, the teaching, Jesus. We especially love the suffering, Jesus. We, we love the Jesus who went to the cross for our sins because the word says by his wounds we are made whole and by his blood we are cleansed and we'll celebrate that in communion later. But we love the Savior who went to the cross and we should. We also really love the risen Savior. We, we love the, the one who came out of the tomb on the third day because you know what? We love celebrating Easter. People get all dressed up for Easter. People come to church and never go to church the rest of the year because there's something about the one who came to take away the biggest fear people had, and that's the fear of death. And tell us there is life, and there is eternal life through him. And oh, by the way, he's coming back again. He's going he's to take us with him to be forever with him in heaven. But when the other Jesus awakes on Tuesday before his crucifixion, he steps out of that imagery, and he comes as a robust, challenging Jesus who is more than just a comforter to help us deal with our own personal agendas. No, you see, the other Jesus confronts us. The other Jesus, he he says, I won't accept second place in any part of your life. I I don't do that. Kings don't don't take second place. But he calls us. He calls us to this fruit-filled adventure of discipleship. He's okay with meeting us where we are, but he loves us too much to leave us where we've been. He's a God that has come among us to show us the way to show us the way to to live, to show us the way to to minister, to show us the way to honor God. And when we read about these 72 hours before the cross, it's the same Jesus who tenderly cares for us when we're hurt, who also tenaciously exposes anything in us that keeps us from walking in the authority and the power of the kingdom of God that he's given us. Oh, I love the other Jesus. His love and unforgiveness are unqualified. That never changes. He loves us. But his demands are non-negotiable. He says, when I, when I want you to obey something, I don't say, hey, let's, uh, let's cut a deal here, Jesus, because that's a little hard. No, he says, my, my demands are non-negotiable, because he's the master. He's the one with the mandate of the kingdom and the Lord of all of life, and he calls us to commit everything, all, all to him, everything about us, all that we have, all that we are. You see, that's the other Jesus, because modern Christianity focuses almost exclusively on Jesus who's always available to get us out of a jam to solve our problems. And make no mistake, he does. Make no mistake, we need to bring our needs to Jesus. Think about this guys, he is the friend who sticks closer than a brother. He's the one that said I'll never leave you nor forsake you. He's the one that sustains us when we're lonely. He he guides us when we're confused. He, He lifts us up when we are weak and we can't go another step forward. That's our Jesus. He's the one we call out to when we fail. Who we cry out to when we're broken who forgives us when we sin and runs to us when we're lost. Oh, he's the same Jesus. But yet we run the danger of living, limiting Jesus to only being our problem solver. Instead of the King of kings and Lord of lords, he becomes our, our buddy Jesus that just wants to hang out with us. I don't know about you, but buddy Jesus doesn't change culture, doesn't change society, and he doesn't change us. We need to get Buddy off the screen. We had enough Buddy, right? But you see, this other Jesus just messed up everything. This other Jesus came into a world that was looking for a political solution. He says, no, the kingdom of God is in you. The kingdom of God is found in us. So when we get so focused on getting Jesus to help us with our plans and somehow make it through this life and raise good kids and have a nice home and all the things we pray about so often, we miss the opportunity to listen And to hear of his exciting plans for us. You see, the other Jesus calls us to attempt that which we think is impossible. Isn't that awesome? He calls us to places to where we know that unless we have an empowerment that is greater than us, we will not survive. We will not make it. We will not see that which he wants done in us. But he's always there. He's always faithful. He's the one that comes and says, in your weakness, I'm made strong. Look to me. In your temptation, run. Run to the arms of the other Jesus. Whether it be a a weakness of the flesh, whether it be an issue of sin, whatever it is, he says, I challenge you. There is greater power for you than you have in yourself. So stop trying to do it all on your own. Because I've come to show you there's authority in the name of Jesus. Oh, I I love when this other Jesus causes us to dream. And to dream of things that uh, are unimaginable. To dream of things that, that would be so amazing that we just can't help but be compelled to pray and start believing and asking God to bring them about. You see, it's this Jesus, the other Jesus, that, the, that really the people that are outside of the church, and if we're gut level honest, those that are in the church really, really are longing for. Because it's one thing to have your needs met. It's another thing to live a life that is challenged, to live in a way that is supernatural, where only God is given praise and glory of what works through you. You see, we look for the other Jesus, and we need the other Jesus today. We we need to know him. We need to go after him because the beauty of knowing the other Jesus is that he calls us to live in his power and his strength. Oh, listen, he makes tough demands. There's no question about it. You you and I both, if if you read the Bible, if you're honest with yourself, there's times you read things that he says, and you're like, Lord, who can do that? Who can forgive their enemies? Lord, Lord, who can do that? God, who can turn the other cheek? Lord, who who can do that to pray for those that are in authority over us? God, especially when we didn't vote for them, we disagree with them. God, who can do that? But his tough demands are meant only to shape us. And to shape us more and more and more into the image of Christ. Because what the world that is lost and dying and going to hell without God needs is not clean little cookie cutter Christians that show up and look the same. They need people walking around with the power of the Holy Spirit, making a difference, calling things that are not as though they are by faith, and standing up and pointing to a way that is not through our government, not through our society, but through the kingdom of God that literally changes our earth, makes us people of God. So what does he do? He challenges our prejudices. He says, you got to look at people differently. He he inspects our our lives. He looks for fruit. He, He calls us to examine our priorities, our values, and attitudes. And when he does, we discover that not only does he help and heal, not only is he sensitive to our cares, but he also enlists us to care enough to serve others who need to know him. You see, the other Jesus is the one who calls us to live decisively by faith, and that through with our, our faith, literally fruit would be born in us that will last. John 15, John, John 15 verse 16 says this, it says, you did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Now, we're going to talk about that last part next week, because the other Jesus tells us there's a way to pray. There's a, there's a way to act in faith. We're going to talk about that next week. But for today, what I want us to do is I want us to look at that first thing on that Tuesday. I want us to, to look at what Jesus did when he stepped into this world. He gets off the donkey, and he, he, he's coming out as being something that they really weren't expecting. Because the very first thing he did makes no sense at all. Not in our way of thinking, at least. He curses a fig tree. I mean, look at it. Pick it up in verse 12. Mark, again, Mark 11, verse 12. It says, the next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance of fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard that. They heard him say that. Now, honestly, if you're new to the Bible and you read that and you're like, okay, let's go on to something else. We, we don't. What, what's up with the fig tree, right? Why, why is this such a significant event In the the leading up to the crucifixion of Christ. Well, a couple things for context that you need to understand. The fig tree was in the Old Testament always a symbol of Israel. But it was also a symbol of prosperity, of God's blessing, of God's success. You wouldn't know this to look at it, but if you look at the renderings of our building, if you look at the tree that's on the front right corner of our building, it's a fig tree. Because our architect, who's a believer, said, let's, let's get symbolic here. There's a, there's a place of blessing. There's a place of, of God's honoring the people of God of hope. So this fig tree had, had high significance because it was a symbol of the blessing of God upon Israel. Now, interesting thing about fig trees, I, I'm not, uh, I went to an agricultural college, but I don't know anything about horticulture, and, uh, and I certainly don't know about fig trees other than I like to eat figs every once in a while. But the interesting thing about fig trees is this. The fruit is very different than other trees. Literally, the fruit shows up before the leaves do. So the the fruit appears before there's any leaves on the tree. And so when you read the story and you say, well, why is he cursing the fig tree? It's not even in season yet. What's up with that? Did did Jesus just wake up as the grumpy Jesus? I mean, he didn't have his coffee that morning like fig tree, no fruit, boom, curse you. No. What he saw was he saw something that had all the evidence of fruitfulness except fruit that had all the trappings of life but yet had no evidence of the fruit that should be born in it you see he's on the way to the temple he stops and he curses the fig tree because it has nothing but leaves it it has pretense but it doesn't have fruit and from there he goes and he cleanses the temple do you think those things are connected absolutely They're, they're not coincidental they're not out of order because what he was doing was he was showing to the people of Israel that there was something going on or this fig tree was symbolic. Its leaves were symbolics of religious activity. Man, they're just going, they're sacrificing, they're going to the temple. In our context, it would be like, man, they were showing up for church. We're going downtown to feed the hungry. We're, we're doing all this other activity. But yet there's no heart relationship that leads to any kind of fruit. The heart's never changed. And he goes into the temple you talk about activity, I mean, my goodness. Here they were at the time of Passover, and uh, uh, estimates were made that this little town of about 200,000 swelled to about 3 million people during this time, and, and they're coming to sacrifice in the temple, and all you can hear is the, the sheep bond the, and the doves cooing and, the, and the, the crooked priests out selling everybody, way overpriced doves. I mean, it was just chaos. He says, activity, but no fruit. Activity, but no faith. Activity, but no honor to the God who created them in the first place. You see, the the Israelites at that time were very similar to what the Lord said in 1 Timothy about what people are like in the end days. He said they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. They, They look religious. I mean, they can dress up, wear the big hat, get the big Bible. They can shout hallelujah and say amen at the right times. But go out and live like hell the rest of the week. He's like, that's not not the heart relationship. You see, they had a zeal for God, but they didn't have knowledge. And so Jesus cleansed the temple and denounces their religion. He curses the fruit tree, the fig tree, and denounces the nation as fruitless altogether. I don't have time to to track it all out today, but if you trace the history of Israel and even the nation of Israel right now, they still live under that curse. They live in a constant paranoia. They're going to get blown up. And it all goes back to this time. Now, let me tell you something. God has something good for them in the end. You need to read the rest of the Bible. God has some amazing things for them in the end. But I'm telling you right now, they're still living in that place because it's one of those godless, unchristian nations you can go to. We have missionaries there. Tough place. Because guess what? The fig tree still bare. There's a lot of activity going on, but there's no fruit being brought together. You see... Fruit is always an indicator of salvation. Let's take it to us. We're like, Pastor, we're not Israel. Take it to us, all right? America's not modern Israel. The church is. Let's just get that straight. He says, take it to us. Fruit is always an indicator of salvation, of, of belonging. It's an, it's an evidence that we are his. Uh, it's kind of like you as a parent. You hope someday your kid looks like you, right? You know, there's evidence. They're, they're mine. Well, that's the way fruit is. Fruit says, see, see the fruit? God, God says, that's, that's mine. Look at this in Matthew 7. Jesus was making a differentiation. Uh, There were false prophets. There were people out that were acting religious, but they were leading people astray. They were were, uh, wolves in sheep clothing, so to speak. And in Matthew 7, he, he clarifies how you know them. He says in Matthew 7, verse 16, by their fruit, you'll recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Listen, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. And every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. He says, listen, you you, you want to differentiate uh, what's happening around you. He says there's an evidence of fruitfulness. There's an evidence of, uh, of holiness, of justice. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But every time you see the idea of relationship with Christ, there's always this this idea of fruit being born. Matthew chapter 13, famous parable of the soils. Uh, Some may call it the parable of the seeds, where where the man went out sowing seeds, right? And and he he threw it on four different types of soil. There was was rocky soil, there was soil that had thorns in it, but there was one soil that was called good. And, And the reason it was good is, according to God's word, Matthew 13, that it was seen as good only because it produced what? Fruit, some 100-fold, some 60-fold, some 30-fold, some but it was producing fruit. And he says that, that's good. That's, that's an evidence. That's an evidence of belonging, of relationship. John fifteen five, probably one of the earliest scriptures that my parents helped me memorize, uh, not in this version, but it says in, in John fifteen five, I am the vine, and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, religion says it's all about us. Relationship says it's all about him. Religion says I can do it. I can make my own way. I can bring the sacrifice. I can quote the verse. I can own the Bible. I can even give in the offering. But but relationship says, Jesus, my heart is yours. My life is yours. My hopes are yours. My dreams are yours, God. And I trust you. You see, fruit is born out of relationship. Fruit is a manifestation of true salvation working in us. You see, cursing this fig tree was Jesus' way of saying to the whole nation, look, you become spiritually barren. And, and there, there, you have a former religion, but I have no place for that because our Lord, listen to this, our Lord has no use for religion that is outward only and barren of the fruit of holiness and humility. In fact, I used to struggle with a pastor I was, uh, came up under. He would say... Better to be a good sinner than a fake believer. And I was always like, you're telling us okay. You no, what do you mean by that? What he was saying is, literally, if you're so deceived in the thought that you're walking out this religious life but have no relationship with Christ, you'd be better off to be a sinner so your sins at least would scream to you and say something's not right here. Fruit. Fruit that is born. Fruit that comes out of us. I, I, I struggled often with some of Jesus' teaching, and uh, one of them is in Matthew 7. We're going to wrap this up with this, because it didn't make sense to me, and and you'll understand as we read this in a moment, because what he was doing was in the Sermon on the Mount, he he was warning against this self-deluded people that uh, had a mere verbal profession of the lordship of Christ, but they, they didn't have a desire to obey his will. They didn't have a desire to submit unto his lordship. And in Matthew 7, verse 21, he says something. This has always puzzled me when I, when I first really tried to grasp it. It says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. For many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform miracles? Right, right there, I mean, you read that, you're like, what? I mean, wait a minute, if people are prophesying, if they're performing miracles, if they're driving out demons, don't you think you're like, hey, that's a believer, that's awesome. But what he was saying was, he said it is possible, it is possible for a self-deluded person to exercise spectacular ministry using the authority of Scripture, because God always honors his word in the name of Jesus without walking in genuine, obedient faith before him. He says, listen, you can do all the religious stuff. You, you, can, even, you can even do some amazing things. But he said, I want to tell you. He said, I, I don't know you. So away from me, you evildoers. See, that was hard for me. I was like, God, I don't understand. I, I thought that the, the outward evidence of our, our faith in you, God, is like, hey, we can do miracles. That's awesome, God. We're going to pray for people that get sick. I mean, they get healed, and we're going to open the eyes of the blind. We're going to raise the dead. I mean, All those promises. And yet he says, listen, there's going to be people that do all those things. But like Israel, it's just activity. See, it doesn't mean that nothing good ever came out of the activity of Israel. There were people that genuinely you know, turned their hearts toward God through the, through the sacrifice and the worship. But as a whole, what he was saying was all that activity never turned their hearts to the other Jesus, never turned their hearts to the thought that the Messiah wasn't there just to meet their own needs, to kick out the Romans, but to give them eternal life. And to show a better way that this world would be different because of him. Now, I know when you read this scripture, maybe if you're new to this story, you can look at it and say, man, he didn't give Israel a chance. I mean, three days, shows up, boom, curse the fig tree, turns the tables over, you're all done, curse you. No, Israel had centuries of God wooing them. Centuries of God showing the miracles. Centuries of things that if we saw today, how in the world would we not serve Jesus? And yet they still turned their backs and said, no, we want another God. We want a God that just is concerned about us. That's all. You see, we live on this side of the cross. Aren't you glad? I've had people say, oh, I'd love to go back and live in the days of of Joshua. No, no, no. (laughs) No, thanks. I'd like to go back and see what it was like at the Ark. No, thank you. I'll I'll go visit the Ark Museum online. That's about as close as I'll get. I, I no. We live in the best place. We live on this side of the cross. We live in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ who by faith, the word says, we are saved. But it's through grace, not not anything we do. You see, this is not a message about, hey, you need to get busy and do some more works. No, the Israelites had plenty of works. What the message is saying is this. If God doesn't have your heart, the works don't matter. If God doesn't have your heart, then he's not king at all. I said earlier, the the, the other Jesus does not come into second place. He just doesn't do it. And so even now he calls out to the church and and around the world, but I I really bring it to our culture because we see what's happening in our culture. And he says, look, I need you to move from lip service and give me your heart. Because if you do, then the fruit will be evidence. say, well, pastor, how do we know if we have fruit or not? That could be a crazy discussion, couldn't it? Because you may develop fruit that I don't, and I may have fruit that you don't, but yet they all fall into a, a very broad but beautiful category. And it was, all, it was all given to us back through one of the Old Testament prophets, one, a, a book you probably have not read ever, or if you did, it was by mistake, or it was in one of that read through the Bible in a year thing, the book of Micah. And I'm not going to ask you to turn there, because we'll be there for about 10 minutes trying to find it. Old Testament, okay? So in the beauty of technology, I'll just give it to you. Micah chapter 6, verse 8 love this he said he has shown you o mortal what is good and what does the lord require of you what's the fruit what's the evidence he says act justly love mercy walk humbly with your god and read it again act justly love mercy and walk humbly with your god see israel had missed this There was no justice. The poor were seen as cursed. We don't need to bother with them. There was no mercy. If you don't meet our standards, we cut you off. It was more Taliban than Christianity. There was no humility. The priests robbed. They were treated like rock stars. They were were it instead of God being it. There was no walking humbly before their God. So what do we do? So what do we take? What do we we gain? What do we look at and say, out of this scripture, then God, what are you saying to us? And how do we respond even? I know you're used to me giving you a lot of bullet points to write down, and they're there, and you version if you want to see it, but but I only have two, and they're both right at the back because they're going to lead us to prayer. If you're taking notes, write them down, but they'll be on the screen. And that is simply this. God is more concerned with my love and justice than with my appearance or my attendance. You say, Pastor, that's kind of contradictive to a pastor to say he's more concerned about me loving them and showing up. I want you to show up one place when Jesus calls. I want you to stand before the gates of heaven and hear those words, words well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I make you rule over much. Come in. That's that's where I want you to show up. Now, I believe church is a big part of what we do on this earth because we encourage each other and we're challenged. But can I tell you, church attendance doesn't save anybody. Baptism doesn't save anybody. Your grandma's religion doesn't save anybody. But when our hearts are his and we love him, we love justice. And then the last point today is just that flip side of that, and that is people without love and justice Hinder God's purposes. It's not easy living the life of Christ in this generation. But be honest with you, it's not been easy in any generation. We are challenged with things we never had to deal with before. We, we are affronted with many things we never thought would be affronted with. But can I tell you again, just as we prayed by faith earlier, it's the same Jesus yesterday, today, and forever. Who says, if you want to walk it out with justice and mercy and humility, then give me your heart. And when I have your heart, I will fill you with the Holy Spirit's power. Because when the Holy Spirit's power comes, then those things I ask you to do, they want to be on yourself. Guess what? Now you'll be able to walk them out. Because it's me and you doing the work.